0: You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of His followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's Word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org.
1: It truly is. I am really excited. I mean, it is genuinely my pleasure today to welcome to us to speak to us about Young Life. Welcome, Matt Hendrickson. As Matt comes up, I will um, just share a tiny bit about him. Many of you know Matt, but for some of you, he's he's this big guy's new. So, um, Matt Hendrickson is the um, associate director for Young Life for the Salem Kaiser area. And um, he has been, uh, he's a father of two girls. He's a w- husband. His two girls are, like, say, of, of, I promoted them yesterday when I was chatting with him. They're fifth grade and eighth grade, I think at Lamb and Stevens. His wife, Tabitha, is a very talented lady, and, uh, as is Matt. And Matt is finishing up. He's enrolled in seminary at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he hopes to be finishing up that next year. But more importantly, he's involved in our mission work. And we've heard about our mission work, our, out, our church. I love the fact that our church does outreach. We don't just do it within this community here in this room. And we've heard from Kenya. We've heard from prison ministries. We've heard from various other ministries that we support. Well, we've supported Young Life since, um, I'm told by Barry, since 2006. And more specifically, recently, we support the, the work in our neighborhood school in McKay, and that's what Matt's going to tell us about today. God is working at McKay. I, you know, we hear about, like I said in my prayer, we hear about brokenness in schools and needs in school, but man, God is at work at McKay. Matt. It's yours.
0: Thanks, MJ. Uh, good morning. It's really good to be here. I, uh, there's a few people I definitely need to hug before I leave if, that's, if you're okay with hugs at this point in the pandemic, but uh, it's really great to see some of the faces around here even with your mask up. Uh, Man, it's, it's, it's good to be here. I, I am going to share a few really great details about the ministry that's happening at McKay High School, or as I've come to start describing it, the McKay community. Uh, but as I was thinking about what to share today, I kept coming back to this space where I felt like I needed to just talk about a, a word that makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, and this is how I know it's what I'm supposed to share about, because that last song used that word in the very meaningful way, and I was like, okay, God, I see what you're doing there. I was uncomfortable about this idea, but then all of a sudden I come, and there's a worship song about that word, and the word is anointed. For some people, that's not a weird word. It doesn't hit you weird, but it hits me weird, and I don't know if it's because I grew up in a very conservative, like, keep to yourself, don't live out loud for God kind of family, but um, my mentor about a year ago, spoke that word over me. He's like, Matt, there's an anointing on your life, and it makes me super uncomfortable when stuff like that gets said. I don't know why, but it does. Um, And as I thought about what to share today, I really wanted to talk about the anointing here. The anointing here. Uh, I remember, I was on staff here for about five years. I remember... Seeing, like, and hearing and feeling this presence of the Holy Spirit speak through Barry as he talked about the property at 4290 Portland Road and how long ministry and how long the Holy Spirit has been entering into the lives of people in this vicinity. Decades. And we're just a chapter of that story. And I thought that was so cool. And as those chapters and those pages turn and things change, like, how cool is it that we get to continue walking into the world of people around us? and sharing the Holy Spirit and sharing that anointing. And I speak specifically about young life in the capacity of McKay High School. That's, that's what I ended up going to do after my time on staff here. Uh, but so much has changed. We've grown into just not just a high school ministry, but uh, there's two middle school ministries happening now. There is a bridge being built between us and the Catholic Church to reach kids at Blanchette, kids who grew up and feel disillusioned with the Catholic Church. We are a ministry that walks into the world of kids and shares the presence of Christ with them. A movement of wholeness in a world that's filled with too much brokenness right now. And it's a beautiful thing. But that comes from the anointing of this church. And I don't know if you know this, but when I say this church, I'm talking about you. You have an anointing on your lives. You might have just shown up here for a Sunday morning service, but I want you to understand that God has a really major point for you to be here today. You are anointed, you are called, you are, God is moving forward into the lives and the hearts of the people around you and he's asking you to listen and follow him into that space. That's amazing. I was reading Nehemiah not too long ago and it reminded me, I remember when I was still here, Barry did a sermon or series on Nehemiah and there's there's this piece where I'm like, how in the world did Nehemiah convince all these people who are probably disillusioned and tired and weary to build the, the the wall and to build the gates again. If you're familiar with the story, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and it's in ruins and he gathers all the households and he rebuilds the wall. And I, he tells the story of God's hand on his life. Guys, I have had the privilege of walking into the world of kids and seeing hundreds, and I'm, I'm, it might even be close to thousands at this point, of kids say, yes, I want Jesus to have ownership of my life. Just in this neighborhood. And I remember when I was on staff here, uh, my friend DJ Vincent, he asked this question hypothetically. He said, if the, ch- cl- the doors of your church closed today, how would the neighborhood around it notice? And I think that they would absolutely notice if New Harvest were to shut its doors. And I'm so thankful for a church like this that stands with us on this mission of. I think of the McKay community, and I think of Kaiser this way, and North Salem this way. Like we're building this wall of protection and prayer and hope and vision over kids. And there are households, churches, New Harvest, First Free Methodist, to uh, God be the glory, Oak Park Church of God, Calvary Chapel, New Hope, Forswear, that are helping us build that type of adoptive community for kids in this neighborhood. I don't know if you were driving around much on Thursday during Veterans Day. I got to be out in my neighborhood driving around running some errands. And there are kids everywhere. Like, no school, right? And they're just out. And it's been a minute since I've seen that pandemic, all the things, right? But, man, what does it look like as we continue to walk into the world of kids with an adoptive mindset? As a church, as a gathering of churches. How beautiful is that picture? And I just want to say thank you for that. We, we've been in the season of like, what do we do with COVID, right? And, and nationwide Young Life has lost close to 50% of its volunteer base. That's crazy. But at McKay, we've doubled our team. And, and, um, we, we got limited on the amount of kids we had to, you know, Opportunities to take to camp, and that was a small number. But this year, we're on pace to take 75 kids to camp and see kids meet Jesus in a real way. Um, guys, I'm so excited for what this year looks like, and I'm, I'm ridiculously thankful for a church like you that leans in with us. Um, if you want to know more about like the specifics of what are going going on and uh, the needs that we have, I'd love to chat with you. I'll stay around today and, and chat. I got, like I said, I owe a few people hugs. So, anyways, that's my update. Uh, there's an anointing here at 4290 Portland Road, and I am so blessed uh, to see you and share that word over you. Thank you so much. I'm for him. Yeah.
2: Matt has a new hip, and I have a new knee, so we have, we're comrades, and I knew we could step down from these steps because he's tall enough for the camera to see, but they're only seeing my nose on up, so anyway, <laughs> but that's like I have a mask on anyway, right? Hey, this brother is a great guy, and what a heart for uh, kingdom and work, and I've always known this about Matt. When he would have the freedom to flourish, he would, and he has, and God has put an anointing on his life. Father in heaven, thank you for Matt. Thank you for McKay Young Life. Thank you for the blessing of you spreading your influence through these willing people Matt and his team, we want, Lord, for it to be fruitful and multiply even more and more, just as Matt was sharing, excited for what you have in mind in the future. Thank you for what you've done. Pray blessing on this guy and his family. So glad he could be here today. Praying this in Christ's name. Amen. All right.
3: Cool. Yes. Well, thanks, Matt, for being here appreciate that. Good morning everybody. Good morning. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at New Harvest and excited to continue our series in Daniel this morning. A few quick things before we jump in though. One is in the seat in front of you or in the back of the seat right in front of you is a connection card. And if you're new, if you have a prayer request, If you change your phone number, your email, your address, whatever, we'd love to hear from you. It's kind of your way of letting us know about things happening in your lives. We pray for these requests that come in every week. And if you're online and you're joining from home or whatever, you can go to newharvestch.org forward slash connect. And there's a connection card, an online version, where you can do the same thing. And we'd love to hear from you. We value you and we don't just want you to be isolated at home. We want to connect with you. So that's uh, one thing. The second thing is, on Thursday night, right before midnight, there was a family in our church that had a baby. And so I just want to congratulate Rian and Hannah Razabala on the birth of their son, Ezra. That was Thursday night. A healthy, healthy baby boy. And one of the things that we love to do with families that have kids is to bless them with a meal. And so Heather Roholds put together a meal train If you have any interest in being a part of that and you have no idea what I'm talking about or no idea where it exists, come talk to me, talk to Heather, talk to Karen. Any of us can help you get connected with that as a way to bless them and their now expanding family. And then the last thing is Matt even referenced it. On Thursday, we had an important holiday. In our society here in this country, we call Veterans Day. And I know, looking out here, of a number of veterans that are a part of our church. And I thought, you know, I know what happened three days ago, but it's good to honor and reflect on all that they have done to allow us to have things like gathering in a church on a Sunday morning and having the freedom to do so. So I'd love to invite, I know that this is like the last thing that these guys and women like to do, but I'd like to invite veterans To stand as we could thank you for your service to our country. Gary, your dog was even smart enough to know to stand there, so that was pretty impressive. (laughs) Very nice. Well, our focus this morning is on the theme and subject of exile. And if you've ever moved a great distance, you understand kind of the the desire of a longing for home, that like deep-seated desire, a place where you can become and where you can be, a place where trust is already established, a place where hope is not just something off into the future, but something that exists in the present. My dad actually made reference to the sandlot lot. Last Sunday, for those of you that were here and remember that, the movie The Sandlot is a baseball movie, right? But it's really, I think, a movie a about exile, about longing for home. Smalls is the new kid in town. He moves in the summer. He has no friends because there's no school to connect with other other kids, and he doesn't really have a good relationship with his stepdad, and so he's in this place where he has no connections whatsoever, and he stumbles across this baseball field, this sandlot, where he meets a bunch of guys, and he is so desperate to have this feeling of warmth and camaraderie and friendship, of home, he wants to feel at home in the place where he lives, that he does this thing that he has absolutely no idea how to do, play baseball. He cannot even throw a ball, but he allows himself to look like a fool to gain some friends. It's that kind of longing for home that drives him to do that all summer long. And really, I think of exile as like a form of suffering, and it's one that we don't usually talk about. I say suffering because exile is estrangement. Exile is being unsettled. It's this knowledge that you can't be at the place that feels like home, and the place that you are doesn't allow you to feel settled either. And so there's this kind of acute form of suffering that I think of when it comes to exile. Now, most of us in our current situation here are not forced from our home in that feeling of exile. But we might feel like the place where we live, the time in which we live, might not feel like home. Like, this doesn't really reflect who I am and what I desire. We might have that kind of feeling of exile. And so in that way, I would say exile is more like home alone. You remember Kevin? Kevin goes to bed one night and he wakes up the next morning. He's in the same place. He's in the same bed, in the same home, same city. Everything's the same. And yet everything is different because his family's gone. And so he has to learn how to navigate life totally different despite being in the same place. I think that is what exile is like for a lot of us. This place we call home, whether it's months or years or decades, feels different. And eventually, we don't feel like we're at home. Now, how do we navigate that sort of situation? Well, the book of Daniel has given us a glimpse on how one Christian had navigated that question. We remember back in Daniel 1. Daniel was around 15, 16 years old when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and overcame Jerusalem. And he took a bunch of people, including Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to Babylon. And that's where Daniel spends the rest of his life. He spends the rest of his life in Babylon from 15 years old into the time of his death. We don't ever get the indi- indication that he leaves Babylon now, these two places, Jerusalem, where he's from, and Babylon, where he now lives, could not be any more different. So I just I put a little table together to help us kind of understand the differences between these two places. Jerusalem is a place where faith is at the center. It's the center of life. Everything revolves around faith, and it's a monotheistic society. They believe in one God, and so you are either a part of that society by believing the same thing, or you're not a part at all. But the problem is they have this idol, which I would describe as piety, that they see their religious devotion as making themselves good. So piety would be their idol. And what is Jerusalem? What's the value of that society? Religious devotion. Religious devotion. They are devoted to prayer, to the gathering of the community, to sharing of life together. This is all of the Israelite values that really birthed the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's not like Babylon at all. In Babylon, faith is in the margins. We have astrologers and magicians. Those are the people that are raised up to the forefront of Babylon. It's a polytheistic society, meaning there are a plethora of gods. Just kind of choose one, and anyone goes. And, you know, different situations, you call upon that god and then call upon that god. There's not one god, there's many The idol of Babylon would be syncretism. So you take all these different ideas about what life is like and you just kind of throw them together and you say, oh, we'll do do some of this. We'll do some of this. There's no really foundational belief. It's kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of things. Does that sound like anything that we might experience here in America today? Right? Syncretism. Then the last, values. What does Babylon value? Power and accumulation. It's more stuff. It's a city built out of gold. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this high value of gold. He builds this statue of pure gold. It's power and accumulation. And I think really the best way to describe the difference between Jerusalem and Babylon is the way that Augustine describes the city of God versus this city of earth. And he writes about this in his book, The City of God. He says, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by a love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory, the lifter of my head. And we can kind of see the difference there between the heavenly kingdom In the earthly kingdom, the values of putting God first and the values of putting man first. Well, in Daniel, we see some of that playing out. And in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 1, we know that Daniel was put into this training program where he and his friends were kind of indoctrinated into the ways of Babylon. They even had their names changed. And all throughout their time in Babylon, they're given opportunity after opportunity to turn away from God toward the ways of Babylon, to be living in that Way And now 66 or 67 years have passed since Daniel got to Babylon to where we are now in Daniel chapter 6. And so Daniel is around 80 years old. 80 years old and God is still using this man in a mighty and powerful way. And so our focus today highlights one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament, Maybe the most memorable chapter in all of the Old Testament. It is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's a story that I would imagine, even if you've never opened a Bible before, you've probably heard this story. And so what I want to do is look at the story and what it has to say, and then to use that as a grid or a framework for understanding what it looks like to live as an exile in our world today, to allow Daniel's story to impact us. And so if you have your Bible, you could jump to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to jump through the whole chapter, which is 28 verses long. So it'll take a little time for us to get through this whole story because it's pretty long, but the words will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you uh, so you can follow along. Chapter 6 begins by saying, "'It pleased Darius,' To appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps are made accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. Now let's pause real quick just to kind of establish what's happening here. First of all, we don't know who Darius is, as referred to in verse 1. People that want to discredit the Bible say, well, that's because Daniel was making up the story, and it's not actually real, and so he's just creating a name to make the story sound interesting. Well, that seems a little far-fetched. More likely is Darius is not a name, but a title. And so if you were to flip toward the end of the chapter, as we'll read in a little bit, you could look at the end of the chapter which says something about Darius and Cyrus. Cyrus we know. Cyrus is the king of Medo-Persia, which overcame the Babylonian Empire and is now ruling as the most significant nation in the whole world. Medo-Persia, Cyrus as the ruler. And so the way that you could translate that last verse is saying Darius is basically another name for Cyrus, who is the king of Medo-Persia. So I think that one makes the most sense because it's referenced later in the story and it has some historical background to go with it. So for the rest of our time, when you hear me refer to Darius or as a king, what we're really talking about is Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, verse 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, Make King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next thirty days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, one of the things that's really interesting to me about how this is all set up is that these guys are so desperate that they lie. They lie in what they tell the king. Why do they lie or how do they lie? Well, they say to the king that all of these royal officials agree. Every single one of them agree that this is what you should do, king. Who did they not talk to? Daniel. They didn't talk to Daniel. So they kind of distort the truth to make it sound like a better idea than it actually is to pull the king into their idea. Okay, verse 10. So when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who praised any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said said to the king, Daniel! who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Now let's pause there. What's happening here? Well, first of all, they go to the king and they hide the truth. These royal officials go there and they say, didn't you issue the decree? Notice they don't say, hey, by the way, Daniel just broke the law. They say, didn't you issue the decree? They want to make sure that they still have their opportunity intact. And then they exaggerate the truth. They hide the truth, and then they exaggerate the truth. They say that Daniel pays no attention to you. Now, that's not obviously true at all. Daniel has very much honored the king, and the king has raised him up to a position of authority because of the way that he has led. But they want to exaggerate the truth to make it look even worse. And then it says in verse 14: When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel. And made every effort until sundown to save him. So likely the way the law was written is that Daniel probably prayed around noon. And these men saw him praying. They go to the king first part of the afternoon and say, hey, here's the deal. He broke the law. You got to kill him. You got to throw him into the lion's den. And it was probably written into the law that that had to be put out the same day. The same day as the offense would be the, the time when the penalty was given. And so the king who cares about Daniel and thinks Daniel is really valuable in his leadership and his ability, he wants to figure out a legal loophole. And so he spends all afternoon trying to figure out how to get around this and he cannot do it. And so that's why it says until sundown because that's when the penalty had to be brought about. Verse 15. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, "Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no degree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, "May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you." A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. Reminds me of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar could not sleep because of a dream. At the, light, or at the first, dawn, first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lions' den along with their wives and children and before they reached the floor of the den the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones one of the things i read this week as i was studying is that some people want to come up with a very human explanation for how daniel could have been spared while being put in the lions' den is they say well the lions weren't hungry They were probably fed right before because they didn't know that this was going to happen. So they fed before, and therefore they weren't hungry. And so Daniel was spared, not because of a miraculous thing, but just because the lions didn't want to eat anything. Well, I think verse 24 pretty much refutes that because here you have a whole group of people, and it says that they could not even reach the floor of the den. The lions overpowered them and crushed their bones. So the lions were plenty hungry. This is a miracle of the Lord. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote... To all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. In the last verse, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And this is the word of the Lord for us today, a really amazing, powerful story. And you can understand why I say this is one of the most recognizable stories in all of the Old Testament. And so for a few minutes, I'd like to just work our way through the story and highlight a few things that are important for us to understand and grapple with. And then, like I said, I want to use Daniel 6 and the story of Daniel 6 and Daniel's conduct to talk about what it looks like then to live as exiles in our world today. And I think the best way to help us understand the story is to break it down into three parts, what I called three lions, which are really representative of temptations or opportunities to turn against the Lord to the ways of Babylon. And so the first temptation or the first lion are the envious coworkers of Daniel, the envious co-workers. Throughout his six or seven decades that he spent. In Babylon Daniel had developed a very strong reputation. People knew who he was because of how he conducted himself. Remember back in Daniel 2, the king had a dream and he invites all of his royal officials and the magicians to come and tell him about the dream and they can't do it. Who can? Daniel. Remember Daniel 4, the king has a dream about a tree and Daniel is able to interpret it for him after All of the royal officials and the magicians cannot do it. Daniel 5, King Belshazzar has a dream about handwriting on a wall. And all the royal officials and the magicians and the astrologers, they cannot give him an explanation for the dream, but Daniel can. And so all throughout Daniel, we have Daniel distinguishing himself as a very helpful leader. Now, imagine yourself being one of these co-workers of Daniel. Daniel's a foreigner. He's an Israelite. You're a Babylonian. You think you're better than him. So when he's distinguishing himself, you have to be envious, jealous, angry. You would probably do just about anything to knock him down a few pegs because you think that's your rightful place. You're a true Babylonian and he's not. And so what we see is is here's a new king coming to power. King Cyrus comes to power. The Medo-Persian Empire has entered into the city of Babylon. And here's a new opportunity for the Babylonians to establish themselves as greater than and above Daniel. And so what do they do? They try and find charges against him. They try and find grounds for him having done something wrong. Now, remember, he spent 60, 70 years in Babylon. You would think just about any of us you look hard enough over the last 60, 70 years of somebody's life, you'll find something, right? They can't find anything. Nothing at all. Just a little bit of dirt. They find nothing. Truly. Amazing that he conducted himself like that. And so it says they come up with this plan about his relationship with his God, that they can kind of manipulate that in a way. And it says they went as a group. And it really could be translated literally as they went hastily and tumultuously. I think a better translation would be they went as a mob. They're angry, and they see an opportunity to take out this guy that's been sticking it to them for the last 60 years. And so they take advantage of the opportunity to put him in a compromising situation. This is a guy who's been proving himself as more valuable and more important to the Babylonian people than they for the last 60 years. Truly amazing. I think Daniel exemplifies Peter's encouragement that he gives in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, which Daniel obviously is, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits now we don't know if these men who have gone against him ever turn toward Daniel's God the one true God but we do know that they have recognized his good conduct and it has caused anger for them and I think the lesson for us is that we should, as we seek to follow Jesus and allow his way to impact the way that we live, we should not be surprised when we face hardship for living in that way. Why? Because we will stand out. In a city and in a country very much like Babylon that glorifies power and accumulation and sinfulness, followers of Jesus in the way that we live should always stand out our way of life should be dramatically different than the world around us. And there will be opportunities for envious coworkers of our own to try and knock us down a few pegs. And we should not be surprised when we enter into situations like that. Now, there these envy royal officials ultimately come up with a plan. And that's the second lion or the, the second opportunity for Daniel to give in. And that is to compromise allegiance, compromise allegiance. The king puts forth this edict that banned anybody from praying to anyone at all for 30 days other than the king himself. Now, remember, this edict only lasted for 30 days. And so if I'm Daniel, there's, I, I would start thinking about all these ways that I could kind of get around it. Just make a, a small compromise. Like, for instance, he went up to pray in this room filled with windows. He could cover the windows. Nobody has to see him praying, right? He could decide that, you know what, for 30 days, I just I won't pray. I'll just keep quiet. Or if I pray, I'll make sure I'm in a completely private place and I won't, I won't pray out in public at all. Or he could go up there and he could pray. And then when he's brought before the king, you say, oh, king, I was, I was actually praying to you. So you could just kind of distort the truth a little bit. He could make all sorts of small little compromises that nobody would know. Nobody would know that he had compromised in any way at all except God. And he did not do it. Now, you might think I'm being ridiculous, but the reality is we make those kind of small compromises little, insignificant, unseen compromises all the time. We do that all the time. How easy is it when you're in conversation with a coworker to just throw in a little gossipy comment about somebody else that you don't really like and doesn't treat you well, to kind of gain an edge with them and develop some trust with them and help them to see your way, that you're better than them. How easy is that Conversation. How easy is it to turn on the TV and start watching something you know is not helpful for you? Or to open up your phone and to pull up that website that has stuff that you know you shouldn't be looking at, but you do it because nobody else is going to know, right? How easy is it to tell a half-truth in order to gain an edge in a negotiation with somebody else? How easy is it when you're in a dating relationship to decide oh yeah, I'll go over to their house. Nobody's going to know. Nobody knows that I'm out on a date tonight. How easy is it to allow these small little compromises start to build on themselves? Very few of us ever seek to make a, what we might call a large sin in our lives. More often, these small little compromises start to build on each other to where that big sin just looks like a small sin. In our eyes. And really what we're doing is instead of giving our allegiance to the Lord, those small compromises are saying, I have an allegiance to myself and my desires and my hopes and my comfort more than the Lord. That's what those small compromises are. History tells us that there are countless men and women who gave themselves to the Lord without compromise. And one of my favorite stories of this is about a a man named Polycarp who lived in Smyrna, which is a city in uh, Asia Minor. And he lived around the time of like the 150s. And he is the, at the time, was the last known human being on the earth that had a relationship with the disciple of Jesus. At the time, around the mid-150s, the Roman Empire put out an edict just like with Daniel, that said, if you declare allegiance to Jesus and not Caesar, you will be killed. And so all of these believers are starting to like, well, you know, our lives are on the line now. And Polycarp goes and he meets with his church and he has this vision while he's praying with his church. And in the vision, he's laying on his bed and the pillow fills with fire around his head. And he took that to mean God's way of showing him that he was gonna die by the flame, by standing firm in his faith. Three days after that dream, he was arrested and brought before a judge, and the judge invites him to renounce his faith in Jesus to instead give allegiance to Caesar. And just think of all the little ways that he could have compromised along the way to get out of that situation. What does Polycarp say? He says, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Like Polycarp, Daniel did not compromise. He had every opportunity nobody would have known, and he did not compromise. He had established a rhythm for prayer. He had a place to pray, he had a time period to pray, and he had a posture to pray. He prayed three times a day up in that room, looking toward Jerusalem on his knees, and he did not waver in that one bit after the edict had been issued. And that leads us to the punishment. The third lion, which is the most obvious lion of all, because it's the lion's den. The last part of the story. Like in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fiery furnace, and they come out, and not, they don't even smell like smoke. Not a hair on their head has been singed by the fire. Daniel walks out of the lion's den with no wounds on him. Now, even. If the lions weren't hungry and they chose not to devour him, you think he's going to walk out of a lion's den without a single scratch on him, spending a whole entire night with lions? No, no, there's no way. This is a miracle of the Lord. But I have to imagine that this was an incredibly difficult and trying night for Daniel. We kind of quickly move forward in the story and read that he spends a night there and then he's fine. But that had to be a difficult night. Even if the lions never came after him, it had to be a difficult night of choosing to trust the Lord and trust that his protection and his provision would come through for him. That had to be a night of difficulty for Daniel. And it just reminds me that God doesn't save us from trials. He saves us through trials. And there is a dramatic difference between the two. Often we pray for him to save us from hardship, but his plan for our lives is for us to go through hardship, and that is how he is at work. And it just reminds me that God is not committed to your comfort, to our comfort. God is committed to our sanctification, to us being made more like Jesus, to us being made holy. Now, how does that come? Through hardship, And through suffering, often God will take us into situations that would absolutely wreck any one of us were it not for his grace. He takes us into those situations not because he cares about us feeling good and comfortable in life. He wants us to be holy. And so having held firm against his envious co-workers and having not compromised his allegiance, God provides for Daniel in the lion's den, and saves him. And the chapter ends by saying that Daniel prospered, prospered during the reign of Cyrus. And the story doesn't share any of these details, but I have to think in that situation that Daniel had an impact on Cyrus and the way that Cyrus treated the Israelite people in Babylon. And we know that if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus sends back a remnant of the people to rebuild the city, even as Matt shared about earlier in Nehemiah. Cyrus did that, and Daniel's relationship with Cyrus had to have an impact in allowing that to come. I mentioned Peter saying earlier that we are pilgrims and exiles. Daniel was in exile, and his conduct allowed him to be raised up to a place of prominence. And so I, I, what I'd like to do to end with is just talk about a couple ways of what it looks like for us to be pilgrims in exiles in our world where christian faith is not necessarily acceptable and pleasing to all people what does it look like for us to live as exiles in our world and what can we learn from daniel to help apply to us the first thought i have is belonging before belief often we get these turned around and when society as a whole sees faith in god as a really important value a lot of times belief can happen Before belonging, people will have uh, an encounter with God and decide that they want to follow him and then join a church. But when you live in exile, you have to help people belong before they believe because they have no easy pathway to believe. You have to help them belong first. If Daniel was fixated on helping all the kings that he worked with come to his same understanding about who God was before he could serve them, He would have been killed within his first year in Babylon. But he established a relationship and served Nebuchadnezzar and served Cyrus to where he built a relationship with them. And they valued him. And Cyrus tried to figure out a loophole to keep Daniel alive. Why? Because he cared about him. Not too long ago, I was in a a conversation with a friend. A friend that that is a, a business leader in town and we're involved in some projects together. And this friend is not a believer. And the friend said, Hey, you know, I have some friends, and I just have a question about, about faith and church, and curious about what, what you'd say. And this was like my worst nightmare kind of conversation, as you'll come to see. Uh, it was like everything I dread about being a pastor and a Christian in 2021. And so she said, This person said, You know, I have a friend who's uh, now bisexual, and I have a friend who used to be straight and now is gay. And they like, they would like to go to church, but they don't feel like any church would really be accepting of them. Like, how do you navigate that? (laughs) As you can imagine, I'm really excited to answer this question. (laughs) No, the reality is I was thinking, okay, this friend of mine has a very decided opinion about how to navigate this. And I'm pretty sure that I have a very different opinion about how to navigate this. And so I'm thinking, well, I could start talking about Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 and this abomination, I could navigate the conversation that way. And you want to know what? I would never have a friendship with that person again, right? It would be done and over with right then and there. So how can I hold firm to my belief while still promoting belonging with this friend? And so I just said, you know what? This is a really, really difficult thing because God's word is absolutely clear that God loves all people, all people. And so some of the ways that we live go against what God desires. But God's word is still clear that God loves all people no matter what. And if that wasn't true, then I have no grace to stand on myself. And so I said, these are hard things to navigate, and I much prefer to have conversations with people rather than talking about hypotheticals. But all people are accepted at my church, is what I told this person. And I don't know if that was like an acceptable answer. I haven't talked about it with that person since then. This was several months ago. Uh, But my, my heart behind the way that I tried to navigate that was, how can I be truthful and still maintain a friendship with somebody who sees things very different than me? I think that's what Daniel exemplified in the book of Daniel. He was uncompromising on the things that mattered most to him while still maintaining friendship and relationship with the most powerful people in the country. And so belonging before belief. Secondly, friction produces faithfulness. Friction produces faithfulness. Noel, I'm going to skip that quote, so we'll just keep moving on down the line. The reality is that exile is hard. It's difficult. We can get a little whimsical about the story of Daniel and say, "Oh, look at look at the amazing things he did! Look at how God was at work." Well, the reality is, he spent sixty six years there, and we have a few stories that are the highlights of his life. But most of the time, I have to imagine he had very little friendships. He was not well liked to the people that he worked with because he was different than them. Exile is hard, but that difficulty, I think, has a, a purpose, and God had a purpose in mind with Daniel and with his three three friends. Exile and the frustration of it caused him to want only one thing with his life, and that was to honor the Lord, to honor the Lord. I like how James puts it. He says in James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that your testing, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It pushes us That testing of our faith pushes us to rely on and desire God's glory more greatly. Often I'll hear hardship spoken of in very humanistic terms, like you should embrace hardship because it's going to bring the best out of you. I was taking a Peloton class literally last week, and Robin Arzon, who was the cycling instructor, said these words exactly. You should embrace this friction if you want to look fabulous. Now, I don't really care about looking fabulous, but the idea was that the best you comes through going through this hard cycling class that I'm putting you through. And the whole motivation that she said right after this was to be who you really are. And so her idea of hardship and embracing it was really about me and me being exalted and me looking great or whatever. It was about me. Be who you really are is what she said. Now, that's totally different Than what the Bible says about hardship. Hardship is for what? The glory of God. And think about Daniel. This edict goes down and he goes up to pray, and it says right as he goes up to pray that he thanked God. Now, that is a very curious thing to do when you know you're about to die based on what you're doing, right? He thanked God. Why? Because he knew this hardship was going to bring God glory. In one way or the other, it was going to bring God glory. Daniel did not embrace this hardship because he thought he could be raised up to prominence and become a really significant figure and God was going to, you know, allow him to experience a comfortable life. No. Daniel embraced this because he wanted God's glory more than anything else. And he knew that this situation would allow it to happen. And so I think exile is our reality here as believers in the place where we live more and more. I shared back at the beginning of the series on Daniel, 40% of Gen Z have no understanding or faith in God whatsoever. I'm not even talking about Christian belief. I'm just talking about an understanding of who God is. 40% believe God does not exist. 40%. And so our our world is moving increasingly away from the things that we value most, and that is going to create tensions as we try and navigate life and friendships. There's going to be a lot of people who see things differently than us, and we have to learn how to embrace the friction for God's glory. He's going to make us faithful people as we rely on Him, and we have to learn how to help people belong next to us before they believe the same things. That we do. And if we can do that, if we can embrace belonging and friction for God's glory, I believe that He can use this church and many other churches and believers here and around the world to help people experience the hope and healing that they long for and that they need. I want to invite the worship team to join me as we take some time to respond. We like to, as we close, partake in communion as a reminder to ourselves that what Christ has done is what we need most. We don't need ourselves the most, even though that's the message given to us in our society over and over. It's not our glory. It's not hardship for our own sake. It's hardship and life for his sake. And I like what 2 Chronicles 6 says. It says, the eyes of the Lord are looking all throughout the earth to find out who is fully devoted to him. And I think the eyes of the Lord looked all throughout the earth and found Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, devoted to the Lord, unwavering and uncompromising, despite living in exile. Will he do the same with us today? Would you stand as the team leads us? <laughs> it's pretty clear from Daniel's conduct that he lived that statement, all hail King Jesus. Because he was given time and opportunity again to give devotion and allegiance to someone and something else and he never did. That's the reason we titled the series A Faithful Life. He was faithful because God was faithful to him and working through him. A couple things that are happening this week that we want to let you know about Actually, next Sunday that are happening next Sunday. One is we're going to do Linger Longer. can't tell you how many people have said, hey, when are we going to have a meal again? So next Sunday in the gym, we're going to eat together. We'd love to have you join. it would be kind of a Thanksgiving-inspired meal with some stuff for kids as well that they'll appreciate. And so that's happening next Sunday. And also next Sunday is Angel Tree. We've done this, I think, every year as a church and uh, support prison fellowship and help out an incarcerated parent by providing a gift on their behalf to their kids. So you can uh, participate and choose your angel next Sunday. They'll have those available in the lobby as you arrive and as you leave. Our, our benediction is really inspired by exile. And uh, I found this, I didn't write it myself, uh, but an exile-inspired benediction. It's a little long, did not memorize it, so I'm cheating and reading it. It goes like this. May you depart here knowing the invitation of God to move from comfort to to insecurity, from what we know to what we have yet to discover, from where we have been to where we have yet to go, from safety to a place of risk. Go in the name of Jesus, our Christ, who said, follow me without saying where he was going, only promising transformation and relationship with the trying God along the way. Live this week, thankful and serving all in the name of God, our creator, Jesus, our savior, and of the Spirit, our breath of life. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for being here.